Welcome to another episode of the Street Rat Society. For this episode, we're going to read Black Skin, White Masks by France Fanon. Um, yeah, excited to read this one too. Uh, Fanon really, I think, understood deeply <coughs> a lot of the psychological impact of racism on us. This book was published in 1952, um, which is also when I think it was written or around that time. And uh, we're going to do the introduction in chapter one, ideally. We'll see if we get through it all in this episode. <coughs> all right, introduction. This is a quote. I am talking about millions of men whom they have knowingly instilled with fear and a complex of inferiority, whom they have infused with despair and trained to tremble, to kneel and behave like flunkies. From A. Cesar, Discourse on Colonialism. Of course I forget to mute my phone. <laughs> but anyway, that's a good starting quote. I think I know who he's talking about. <laughs> who who instilled millions of men with fear in the complex of inferiority alright don't expect to see any explosion today it's too early or too late I am not the bearer of absolute truths no fundamental inspiration has flashed across my mind I honestly think however it's time some things were said. Things I'm going to say, not shout. I've long given up shouting. <laughs> Gotta agree with you there, Fanon. Why am I writing this book? Nobody asked me to. Especially not those for whom it is intended. So? So in all serenity, my answer is that there are too many idiots on this earth. <laughs> Damn. And now that I've said it, I have to prove it. Striving for a new humanism, understanding mankind, our black brothers, I believe in you, man, racial prejudice, understanding and loving. It's a very poetic start. I'm bombarded from all sides with hundreds of lines that try to foist themselves on me. A single line, however, would be enough. All it needs is one simple answer and the black question would lose all relevance. What does man want? What does the black man want? Running the risk of angering my black brothers, I shall say that a black is not a man. I like that he puts that in here. <clears throat> There's a lot of ways, I think, to interpret that. Of course, I'm curious where he goes with it. But yeah, maybe the most obvious thing that comes to mind is that to be black is to be stripped of your humanity, number one. And also that the white man is the actual example of uh, the highest standard of, of a man. And that, I mean, he doesn't really talk in um, gender-inclusive terms. So I'll d I will acknowledge that right off the bat. But I think the points that he's making go beyond just the black man. There is a zone of non-being an extraordinarily sterile and arid region, 
an incline stripped bare of every essential from which a genuine new departure can emerge. In most cases, the black man cannot take advantage of this descent into a veritable hell. Man is not only the potential for self-consciousness or negation. If it be true that consciousness is transcendental, we must also realize that this transcendence is obsessed with the issue of love and understanding. Man is a yes, resonating from cosmic harmonies, uprooted, dispersed, dazed, and doomed, to watch as the truths he has elaborated vanish one by one. He must stop projecting his ant antinomy into the world. Blacks are men who are black, in other words, owing to a series of affective disorders, they have settled into a universe from which we have to extricate them. The issue is paramount. We are aiming at nothing less than to liberate the black man from himself. Mm, that is a great line. We shall tread very carefully, for there are two camps, white and black. We shall inquire persistently into both metaphysics, and we shall see what they are often, that they are often highly destructive. We shall show no pity for the former colonial governors or missionaries. Yo. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. In our view, an individual who loves blacks is as sick as someone who abhors them. See, this is what I'm talking about. This is why I wanted to pick Fanon. Um, <clears throat> because I like that he says that both the white and the black identity are highly destructive. Um and that uh, hating and loving blacks is uh, also s someone he abhors. <laughs> Conversely, the black man who strives to whiten his race is as wretched as the one who preaches hatred of the white man. The black man is no more inherently amiable than the Czech. The truth is that we must unleash the man. Uh, Czech is the, like, nationality, C-Z-E-C-H. This book should have been written three years ago, but all the time the truths made our blood boil. Today the fever has dropped and truths can be said without having them hurled into people's faces. <laughs> He's talking about himself. <laughs> I know the feeling. They are not intended to endorse zealousness. We are wary of being zealous. Every time we have seen it hatched somewhere, it has been an omen of fire, famine and poverty, as well as contempt for man. Zealousness is the arm par excellence of the powerless, those who heat the iron to hammer it immediately into a tool. We would like to heat the carcass of man and leave. Perhaps this would result in man's keeping the fire burning by self-combustion. <laughs> so he's burned out. I feel you, Fanon. I've been there. Probably am there. <clears throat> Man freed from the springboard, embodying the resistance of others and digging into his flesh in order to find self-meaning. Only some of you will guess how difficult it was to write this book. In an age of skepticism, when, according to a group of Salauds, which translators note is the Sartrean definition of someone who refuses to take responsibility for his acts, and demonstrates his bad faith, a form of self-deception, a denial of human freedom, and an abdication of responsibility towards oneself and others. <laughs> okay. 
in an age of skepticism when, according to a group of Salads, sense can no longer be distinguished from nonsense, it becomes arduous to descend to a level where the categories of sense and nonsense are not yet in use. (laughs) I like this paragraph. It also reminds me of the um, Black Liberation Army when they say um, intelligence cannot be distinguished from stupidity. The black man wants to be white. The white man is desperately trying to achieve the rank of man. This essay will attempt to understand the black-white relationship. So it's probably obvious already that this um, was a big influence on the What is Race um, series. So yeah, there's a much, much deeper dive in that series of some of these concepts. But still, I wanted to go to the source and uh, hear it from Fanon himself. The white man is locked in his whiteness. The black man in his blackness. We shall endeavor to determine the tendencies of this double narcissism and the motivations behind it. At the beginning of our reflections, it seemed inappropriate to clarify our conclusions. Our sole concern was to put an end to a vicious cycle. Fact, some whites consider themselves superior to blacks. (laughs) I like that he puts some but it's probably like all or anyone who considers themselves white definitely consider themselves superior to blacks. Another fact, some blacks want to prove at all costs to the whites the wealth of the black man's intellect and equal intelligence. Yep. How can we break the cycle? We have just used the word narcissism. We believe, in fact, that only a psychoanalytic interpretation of the black problem can reveal the affective disorders responsible for this network of complexes. We are aiming for a complete, uh, I think that's supposed to be analysis, or maybe lysis is a word, I don't know. We are aiming for a complete analysis of this morbid universe. We believe that an individual must endeavor to assume the universalism inherent in the human condition. And in this regard, we are thinking equally of men like Gabineau or women like Mayotte Capicia, But in order to apprehend this, we urgently need to rid ourselves of a series of defects inherited from childhood. All right, this is where it gets super academic. (laughs) But that's okay, we'll continue. He's going to probably continue to kind of go in and out of that kind of writing. Man's misfortune, Nietzsche said, was that he was once a child. Nevertheless, we can never forget, as Charles Odier implies, that the fact of the neurotic lies in his own hands. As painful as it is for us to have to say this, there is but one destiny for the black man, and it is white. Damn. Um, it makes sense that's, that Nietzsche would say man's misfortune was that he was once a child. The adult child, like the age hierarchy in general, um, in white culture, Yeah, it makes being a child like a bad thing. Uh, Where you're just like dumber and less capable and children don't really have um, positive qualities in white culture in that way. If anything, they're just kind of like like burdens and uh, uh, unrealized adults, which is 
<clears throat> like a really shitty way of looking at children. Um, yeah, you could probably tell I'm not a fan of Nietzsche anyway. But yeah, the next the next paragraph, as painful as it is for us to have to say this, there is but one destiny for the black man, and it is white. Damn. Just straight up, 100% true. Because the black man was also designated by the white man. <laughs> the white man designated himself white and then designated the black man to be black. So there's no black man outside of white, white supremacy culture. Outside of, yeah, white culture in general. Before opening the proceedings, we would like to say a few things. The analysis we are undertaking is psychological. It remains, nevertheless, evident that for us the true disalienation of the black man implies a brutal awareness of the social and economic realities. The inferiority complex can be ascribed to a double process. First, economic. Then, internalization or rather, epidermalization of this inferiority. Reacting against the constitutionalizing trend at the end of the 19th century, Freud demanded that the individual factor be taken into account in psychoanalysis. He replaced the phylogenetic theory by an ontogenetic approach. We shall see that the alienation of the black man is not an individual question. Alongside phylogeny and ontogeny, there is also sociogeny. <laughs> All right, so straight up, I don't know what any of these things are. I have no idea what he's talking about. In a way, in answer to the wishes of LeConte and Damy, I don't know who they are, <clears throat> let us say that here it is a question of sociodiagnostics. <laughs> okay. This is for like the actual psychologists. They'll probably know what he's talking about. I did like that he said the internalization or rather epidermalization <laughs> of this inferiority because epidermal is like your skin, right? Anyway, what is the prognosis? Society, unlike biochemical processes, does not escape human influence. Man is what brings society into being. The prognosis is in the hands of those who are prepared to shake the worm-eaten foundations of the edifice. <laughs> <coughs> the black man must wage the struggle on two levels. Whereas historically these levels are mutually dependent, any unilateral liberation is flawed, and the worst mistake would be to believe their mutual dependence automatic. Moreover, such a systematic trend goes against the facts. We will demonstrate this. Hmm. Okay. For once, reality requires total comprehension. An answer must be found on the objective as well as the subjective level. And there's no point sidling up crabwise with a mea culpa look, insisting it's a matter of salvation of the soul. <laughs> um... Yeah, we'll just see where he goes with this. I don't really believe in the objective level, but, uh, or that, like, we have to make any special case for it, or that, like, yeah, there's any kind of, like, scientific reality, but, uh, that's okay. Let's, uh, yeah, see where he goes. Genuine disalienation will have been achieved only when things, in the most materialist sense, have resumed their rightful place. It is considered appropriate to preface a work on psychology with a methodology. We shall break with tradition. We leave methods to the botanists and mathematicians. There is a point where methods are resorbed. <laughs> that is where we would like to position ourselves. 
We shall attempt to discover the various mental attitudes the black man adopts in the face of white civilization. The quote-unquote savage will not be included here. Certain elements have not yet had enough impact on him. Okay, I'm kind of glad he doesn't include the savage, because um, that's like not a real person. Uh, <laughs> it's just like an imagination of of white culture. But also it's kind of like, yeah, it's a little bit sad that he even uh, says that it's like a real thing that he's just going to skip over. But that's okay. We believe the juxtaposition of the black and white races has resulted in a massive psycho-existential complex. By analyzing it, we aim to destroy it. Hey, all right, let's get it. Many blacks will not recognize themselves in the following pages. Likewise, many whites. But the fact that I feel alien to the world of the schizophrenic or of the sexually impotent in no way diminishes their reality. <laughs> okay. Okay, Fanon. Alien to the world of the sexually impotent. Had to throw that in there, huh? <clears throat> anyway. What a, what a like, uh, convoluted flex. <laughs> Complicated flex. Anyway. The attitudes I propose describing are true. I have found them any number of times. I identified the same aggressiveness and passivity in students, workers, and the pimps of Pigalle or Marseille. This book is a clinical study. Those who recognize themselves in it will, I believe, have made a step in the right direction. My true wish is to get my brother, black or white, to shake off the dust from that lamentable livery built up over centuries of incomprehension. The structure of the present work is grounded in temporality. Every human problem cries out to be considered on the basis of time, the ideal being that the present always serves to build the future. And this future is not that of the cosmos, but very much the future of my century, my country, and my existence. In no way is it up to me to prepare for the world coming after me. I am resolutely a man of my time, and that is my reason for living. The future must be a construction supported by man in the present. This future edifice is linked to the present insofar as I consider the present something to be overtaken. The first three chapters deal with the black man in modern times. I take the contemporary black man and endeavor to determine his attitudes in a white world. The last two chapters focus on an attempt to explain psychopathologically and philosophically the being of the black man. The analysis is above all regressive. The fourth and fifth chapters are suited at a fundamentally different level. In the fourth chapter, I make a critical study of a book that I consider dangerous. Moreover, the author, O. Manani, is aware of the ambiguity of his position. There lies perhaps one of the merits of th there lies perhaps one of the merits of his testimony. He has attempted to give an account of a situation. We are entitled to be dissatisfied with it. <laughs> It is our duty to convey to the author the instances in which we disagree with him. I mean, yeah, I like that. Uh, and obviously, that's just like going to happen uh, no matter what. <laughs> no matter what you're reading, there will be instances of that. The fifth chapter, which I have called The Lived Experience of the Black Man, is important for more than one reason. It shows the black man confronted with his race. Note that there is nothing in common between the black man in this chapter and the black man who wants to sleep with the white woman. The latter wants to be white, or has a thirst for revenge. 
In any case, in this chapter, on the contrary, we are witness to the desperate efforts of a black man striving to desperate striving desperately to discover the meaning of black identity. White civilization and European culture have imposed an existential deviation on the black man. We shall demonstrate furthermore that what is called the black soul is a construction by white folk. The educated black man, slave of the myth of the spontaneous and cosmic Negro, <laughs> feels at some point in time that his race no longer understands him or that he no longer understands his race. That's an interesting layer <clears throat> to add on top of it, the class dynamic. He is only too pleased about this, and by developing further this difference, this incomprehension and discord, he discovers the meaning of his true humanity. Less commonly, he wants to feel a part of his people, and with feverish lips and frenzied heart, he plunges into the great black hole. We shall see that this wonderfully generous attitude rejects the present and future in the name of a mystical past. As those of an Antillian, our observations and conclusions are valid only for the French Antilles, at least regarding the black man on his home territory, which is on his home territory is italicized. A study needs to be made to explain the differences between Antillians and Africans. One day, perhaps, we shall conduct such a study. Perhaps it will no longer be necessary, in which case we can but have reason for applause. <laughs> I mean, I think, so that's the end of the introduction because um, we're going to get into this book. I mean, I'm at least going to read chapter one and uh, I might read more of it. But uh, yeah, so I don't think there is, uh, or rather, I think what a lot of what he says about being black is far more uh, widely applicable than just the French Antilles. <clears throat> but this is a great start. And uh, yeah, and as we get into the chapters, this is like his uh, own take on his, his chapters, so that can help us. So here we go. Chapter one, The Black Man and Language. We attach a fundamental importance to the phenomenon of language and consequently consider the study of language essential for providing us with one element in understanding the black man's dimensions of being for others, it being understood that to speak is to exist absolutely for the other. So this is classic Fanon, extremely abstract and academic. <laughs> but I kind of take this to mean he's basically saying like, We'll just do the best with what we can, with what we've got in terms of language, um, <laughs> and hope uh, we get some kind of understanding out. The black man possesses two dimensions, one with his fellow blacks, the other with the whites. A black man behaves differently with a white man than he does with another black man. There is no doubt whatsoever that this, oh God, visipari... Periousness, visipariousness, I don't know what that means, but anyway, is a direct consequence of the colonial undertaking. Nobody dreams of challenging the fact that its principal inspiration is nurtured by the core of theories which represent the black man as the missing link in the slow evolution from ape to man. These are objective facts that state reality. <laughs> I mean, that's still true today. This whole paragraph. But uh, anyway, but once we have taken note of the situation, once we have understood it, we consider the job done. 
How can we possibly not hear that voice again, tumbling down the steps of history? It's no longer a question of knowing the world, but of transforming it. This question is terribly present in our lives. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that he got to that question already this early on. And I don't know if you've ever been to like, a, I don't know, any kind of politics like panel or talk or event, you know, where they have like someone or some people on stage talking about uh, some or other political issue. And then there's a and a at the end. And almost always the first question or at least one of the questions is going to be, great, I, I agree with what you're saying, but how do I actually do anything about it? How do I apply this in my life? <laughs> and I think it's funny that he puts it right in here. Um, and if, yeah, if you've done any kind of political work, you've heard that question like a million times. Um, it's annoying shit. But here we go. This question is terribly present in our lives. To speak means being able to use a certain syntax and possessing the morphology of such and such a language. But it means above all, <clears throat> assuming a culture and bearing the weight of a civilization. I guess I should add that it's not just annoying that the question gets asked. It's also annoying the answers that are given to the question. And it kind of tells you what kind of event you're at if that question is getting asked. <coughs> white, <coughs> totally ineffective event, even if it's not put on by white people. But anyway. Since the situation is not one-sided, the study should reflect this. We would very much like to be given credit for certain points that, however unacceptable they may appear early on, will prove to be factually accurate. <laughs> yeah, I think he can tell that uh, some of the things he's about to say are going to piss people off. And he's like, look, look, I know you're going to hate this, but I'm going to prove it. Just wait. <laughs> the problem we shall tackle in this chapter is as follows. The more the black Antillian assimilates the French language, the wider he gets, i.e., the closer he comes to becoming a true human being. This is really powerful. We talked about this a little bit with Jamaica Kincaid, um, that the language, the fact that the language is stolen from us, whatever our original languages were, um, and the fact that we have to use English, or in this case French, or some colonial language, or Spanish, or whatever, um, is part of the transformation into being like a black subject or a non-white subject, um, or even a white subject if you're not if your original language isn't English, but now you're speaking English. Um, that's part of uh, the transformation of colonialism on the person. We are fully aware that this is one of man's attitudes faced with being. A man who possesses a language possesses as an indirect consequence the world expressed and implied by this language. You can see what we are driving at. There is an extraordinary power in the possession of a language. Paul Valery knew this and described language as the God gone astray in the flesh. <laughs> man, he'd be name dropping constantly um, and quoting people. I don't know, like almost any of these references, but yeah, it is really powerful. Um, and controlling a population through language is also really powerful. Yeah, I don't really know what else to add to that. It's just like a really sobering reality, actually, of our worlds as controlled by colonial oppression. 
that even this I'm reading this book and it tr- translated into English, <laughs> which is not even I mean it's my quote unquote native language because I grew up in the United States, but it's not actually my native language because my ancestors didn't speak it. Even like two generations ago, like my grandma didn't even speak English. None of my grandparents did. But uh, anyway, here we go. In a work in progress, we propose to study this phenomenon. For the time being, we would like to demonstrate why the black Antillian, whoever he is, always has to justify his stance in relation to language. Going one step further, we shall enlarge the scope of our description to include every colonized subject. All right, now we're talking. All colonized people, in other words, people in whom an inferiority complex has taken root, whose local cultural originality has been committed to the grave, position themselves in relation to the civilizing language, i.e. the metropolitan culture. Yo, this is 100% accurate. This is true even for me and my family. The more the colonized has assimilated the cultural values of the metropolis, the more he will have escaped the bush. The more he rejects his blackness and the bush, the whiter he will become. In the colonial army, and, in, and particularly in the regiments of Senegalese soldiers, the quote-unquote native officers are mainly interpreters. They serve to convey to their fellow soldiers the master's orders, and they themselves enjoy a certain status. So this is a really powerful idea that <clears throat> assimilating or integrating um, or do we have, we have other words for it. I'm just trying to think. But just like generally speaking, um, adopting the culture right? That's all around us. The dominant culture, in this case, white supremacist, <laughs> patriarchal capitalist culture, um, which it's, it's a subtle, like insidious thing, right? Cause like when we go to college, right? Or, um, when we try to act, uh, sorry, talk like properly or correctly, right? We don't use the language like adopting whiteness or white culture or becoming more white. Um, and I think this book is what kind of helps explain that, even though it's like an old, old idea, definitely older than Fadon, but he does a really good job of articulating like those things, like trying to become smarter or trying to become richer or trying to talk better or act better or just become more civilized in general is actually a racial uh, thing. It's based on race. It's based on racial identities, right? That being more civilized is not an objective thing. It's just being more white. Talking better is not an objective thing. It's just being more white. Being more rich is not like an objective thing. Like being more professional or more educated is not an objective thing. It's just being more white. And he gets into a lot more detail, but I think this idea is just really, it's really powerful. It helps clarify the dynamics of race, of the race hierarchy and of racism. Um, so that we can just like see it <clears throat> more often in our lives, see what it's doing to us, like not only externally and physically, but also internally, um, spiritually, 
mentally, uh, emotionally, that it has so many effects on, on us. And if we keep buying into the, the language, <laughs> which he talks about, if we just keep going along with the general English of just like getting smarter, right? Or uh, talking better or whatever, um, or being more professional or more civilized, then we kind of miss, we're, we're actually not aware. We're not really aware of what it's doing to us, what we're doing to ourselves. Um, and we actually, like, it disconnects us from who we are. It disconnects us from our past. It disconnects us from our ancestors. It disconnects us from the reality outside the white colonial world. Um, you know, like it disconnects us from the earth and the other creatures. Um, and it isolates us and makes us into, it like turns us into this individual, this like highly egotistical creature, <laughs> right? That's totally disconnected from the rest of the world and basically just a, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a mimic, something that's mimicking, um, an, an imaginary identity, an imaginary uh, uh, like role in the society, whether it's like um, your job title or whether it's your racial identity, gender identity, your like family title, like husband or, or whatever, or even mother, right? These are all imaginary identities <clears throat> and we replace our true selves our by like the process of becoming uh like educated or professional or a husband or a wife or a man or a woman or whatever identity you're trying to obtain the process of doing that is this process of disconnection from your full humanity, from your past, from your future, from the earth, from the co the whole context of your life. You actually have to completely disconnect yourself from all of that in order to make room for these identities because that's how the, that's how the identities just fundamentally work. It's how they instill themselves uh, in you. It's how you become one of those things. Um, or most more multiple of those things at once, which most of us are, um, it's to adopt the, the definition, the linguistic and the cultural definition. I mean, more importantly, the cultural one, of course, of your role, uh, as a colonial subject, uh, regardless of which act, like specific roles you have, right? No matter what your specific roles and titles are, right? To adopt those titles is to disconnect yourself from who you are, from your spirit, from your body, from your from time itself, right? And just adopt the colonial time, adopt the colonial behavior um, and the colonial definitions of things. Because otherwise those identities don't make any sense, right? They don't mean anything. They don't actually have any meaning besides their relation to power, right? So you adopt those identities to get access to that power. Um, 
that's kind of like the the process um what makes the identities appealing <laughs> is the access to power that you get um and that that's why i call it worship <clears throat> back in the like early episodes because that's what you have to do you have to sacrifice yeah that's the disconnection right it's a sacrifice right um and we think about it that way we talk about it that way not in the spiritual sense right we just say like you know we worked hard or you know we gave it our all or like we take seriously our our role as like a uh a boyfriend or a husband or a wife or a parent um or a worker or whatever it is right but it's sacrifice right and, and it has spiritual consequences and one of those consequences is that you replace your connection with yourself uh, which it's a connection with everything else in in the world you replace it with um this this power that comes from the from oppression from the oppressive hierarchies it comes from the colonial world order it allows you to have this power through its laws through money and through and culturally through adopting the identities um and that's what's doing to you you're actually becoming more um like becoming more colonized becoming closer to the the colonial power uh world order oppressive power it's to be more white it's to be more male um even if you're the antithesis right like even if you're um non-male or if you're black right um to adopt your role in that society 100% and especially if you're trying to improve your status um but it makes you more of that identity because those identities are the ones that are the most powerful they're the most admired um they're the ones that all the values of our culture are based on like the values of hard work and competition and um things like that these values are based on those identities they're defined by those identities so that's like a brief although it still took a while but that was like a brief overview um of some of the earlier episodes of the what is race series if you've already heard it this is probably all review but um yeah i just think it's such a such a powerful idea and uh just a very clarifying idea and so that's why we're reading fanon and that's why i took a little break there to go into it in more detail so that we don't just kind of gloss over it um but yeah and i think he's going to keep talking about it so we'll get back to it there is the town there is the country there is the capital there are the provinces apparently the problem is the same take an inhabitant of lyon and paris he will boast of how calm his city is how bewitchingly beautiful are the banks of the rhone how magnificent are the plane trees and so many other things that people with nothing to do like to go on about <laughs> if you meet him on his return from paris and especially if you've never been to the capital he'll never stop singing its praises paris city of light 
the Seine, the Riverside Dance Cafes, see Paris and die. The same process repeats itself in the case of the Martinetian. First, there is his island, Bass Point, Marigot Grossmorin. <laughs> I know I'm getting these pronunciations wrong. In opposition to the imposing city of Fort de France. Then, and this is the essential point, there is what lies beyond his island. The black man who has been to the metropole is a demigod. On this subject, I shall indicate a fact that must have struck my fellow islanders. After a fairly long stay in the metropole, many Antillians return home to be deified. This is... This describes my family um, exactly. My family's from Egypt. I was born in Cairo. But we see the United States and just whiteness in general and white culture as this beautiful, beautiful thing, like how he talks about the guy in Paris, talking about how beautiful Paris is, you know, even though it's like a colonial seat of power. <laughs> and uh, the city is built on all this suffering. My family sees the United States in the same way. Um, and feels like the closer they get, the more comfortable they get in the cities of the United States. Um, just like the more, like he calls it a demigod, <laughs> just the more inflated that we are as people, like the more superior that we are, the better we are because we are here and because we speak English and because we have access to all these opportunities, quote unquote, right? Um, and just because we act and talk in this way and we're comfortable around like the more educated, civilized people, a.k.a. white people, um, and American people. So, <clears throat> yeah, it's just still true. Still true, I experienced this in my life. The native islander, who has never left his hole, the country bumpkin, adopts a most eloquent form of ambivalence toward them. The black man who has lived in France for a certain time returns home radically transformed. Genetically speaking, his phenotype undergoes an absolute definitive mutation. <laughs> Even before he leaves, one senses from his almost aerial way of, talk of walking that new forces have been set in motion. When he meets a friend or colleague, gone is the expansive bear hug. Instead, our quote-unquote future candidate bows discreetly. The usually raucous voice gives way to a hushed murmur, for he knows that over there in France he will be stuck with a stereotype in Le Havre or Marcel. I'm from Martinique. This is my very first visit to France. That's, that's how it's written. <laughs> he knows that what the poets call divine cooing, uh, meaning Creole, is but a term midway between Creole and French. In the French Antilles, the bourgeois does not use Creole, except when speaking to servants. At school, the young Martinician is taught to treat the dialect with contempt. Avoid Creolisms. Some families forbid speaking Creole at home, and mothers call their children little ragamuffins for using it. <laughs> I know that I was... Um, we didn't really forbid Arabic at home, but it wasn't really uh, emphasized, so my Arabic is just garbage. But... Um, I do know that uh, I was pressured constantly by parents and teachers 
to speak correctly, speak properly. Like I learned these exact same things that this um, um, this Martinetian learned that he's talking about. Anyway, there's this small poem. My mother wanted a memorandum, son. If you don't learn your history lesson, you'll not go to Sunday Mass in your Sunday best. This child will be the shame of us. This child will be our God, damn it. Shut up, I told you, you have to speak French. The French from France. The Frenchman's French. French, French. That's from Leon G. Damas Hoquette. Okay. Uh, pigments. So I don't know what any of that means, but some author, I'm guessing, and their poetry book, or the name of the poem. Yes, I must watch my diction because that's how they'll judge me. He can't even speak French properly, they'll say, with the utmost contempt. Among a group of young Antillians, he who can express himself, who masters the language, is the one to look out for. Be wary of him. He's almost white. In France, they say, to speak like a book. In Martinique, they say, to speak like a white man. The black man entering France reacts against the myth of the Martinetian who swallows his R's. He'll go to work on it and enter into open conflict with it. He will make every effort not only to roll his R's, but also to make them stand out. On the lookout for the slightest reaction of others, listening to himself speak and not trusting his own tongue, an unfortunately lazy organ, <laughs> he will lock himself in his room and read for hours, desperately working on his diction. I love this paragraph. First of all, I think it's autobiographical. Second of all, I like that he attacks the tongue, calling it lazy, but I also like that the tongue is not interested in rolling its R's or learning to speak French. You kind of have to force it. That's really true. I think of all the things we have to do to become more white or just to become better subjects of colonialism, to like um, imp improve ourselves in the ways that it lays out in front of us to like live out its values it requires this kind of um, beating of the body into submission, beating of the mind into submission, beating of the spirit into submission. We're kind of like mini um, kingdoms, mini nations, even in our own bodies with our own ways of um, um, oppressing, suppressing and repressing uh, ourselves to contort ourselves to a colonial ways of like talking and acting recently a friend told us this story on arrival in Le Havre a Martinetian goes into a cafe and calls out with great assurance waiter bring me a drink of beer this is a case of genuine intoxication anxious not to correspond to the black man who swallows his R's he makes use of a great many of them but doesn't know how to divide them out <laughs> So I guess it's more like, waiter, bring me a drink of beer. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. Sorry for everyone who had to hear that. There is a psychological phenomenon that consists in believing the world will open up as borders are broken down. The black Antillian, prisoner on his island, lost in an atmosphere without the slightest prospect, feels the call of Europe like a breath of fresh air. For we must admit that Césaire was overly generous in his notebook of a return to my native land. The city of Fort de France is truly lackluster and shipwrecked. Over there on the slopes of the sun is the city, flat, sprawled, 
tripped up by its common sense, inert, winded under the geometric weight of its eternally renewed cross, at odds with its fate, mute, baffled, unable to circulate the pith of this ground, impaired, lopped, reduced, cut off from fauna and flora. Cesar's description has nothing poetical about it. It is easy to understand, therefore, why the black man, on the announcement of his entry into France, as is said of someone entering high society, is overjoyed and decides to change. Moreover, there is nothing thematic about this change that is structural and independent of any introspection. In the United States, Pierce and Williamson have conducted an experiment called the Peckham Experiment. The authors have proved that there is a biochemical modification in a married couple, and apparently they have detected in the husband certain hormones of his pregnant wife. Oh my God, dude. See, this is why science is not an objective thing. Science is just straight up bullshit. It would be interesting, and there will always be somebody willing, to make a study of the black man's humoral mutation on entering France, or simply study his psyche before he leaves and then one month after settling in France. There is a dramatic conflict in what is commonly called the human sciences. Should we postulate a typical human reality and describe its psychic modalities, taking into account only the imperfections? Or should we not rather make a constant, solid endeavor to understand man in an ever-changing light? When we read that a man loses his effective faculties, starting at the age of 29, and he has to wait until he is 49 to regain them, we feel the ground give away beneath our feet. Our only hope of getting out of the situation is to pose the problem correctly, for all these findings and all this research have a single aim, to get man to admit he is nothing, absolutely nothing, and get him to eradicate this narcissism whereby he thinks he is different from the other quote-unquote animals. Yo, what have we been talking about? (laughs) This is nothing more nor less than the capitulation of man. All in all, I grasp my narcissism with both hands, and I reject the vileness of those who want to turn man into a machine. If the debate cannot be opened up on a philosophical level, i.e. the fundamental demands of human reality, I agree to place it on a psychoanalytical level. In other words, the misfires, just as we talk about an engine misfiring. Hell yeah. Reject the vileness of those who want to turn man into a machine. Hell yeah. I like that a lot. If the debate cannot be opened up in a philosophical level, I agree to place it outside a psychoanalytical level. I mean, what about the physical level? (laughs) I don't want to be turned into a machine. (laughs) The black man entering France, although, I mean, man, I guess I shouldn't get into it too much, but yeah, I definitely have already mostly been turned into a machine. (laughs) but anyway the black man entering France changes because for him the metropole is the holy of holy holies he changes not only because that's where his knowledge of Montesquieu Rousseau and Voltaire comes from but also because that's where his doctors his departmental superiors and innumerable little potentates come from from the staff sergeant 15 years on the job to the gendarme from Penisier's There is a kind of spell cast from afar, and the black man who leaves in one week for the metropole creates an aura of magic around him where the words Paris, Marcel, the Sarbonne, and Pigalle 
represent the high points. Dude, I guarantee you if you speak French and you're listening to this, you are like bleeding out of your ears. I'm sorry. <laughs> I am just, I don't know any French. So, um, yeah, bear with me. And, uh, you know, also fuck French. So there you go. On departure, the amputation of his being vanishes as the ocean liner comes into view. He can read the authority and mutation he has acquired in the eyes of those accompanying him to the ship. Adieu, Madras. Adieu, Foulard. <coughs> now that we have accompanied him to the port, let him sail away, and we'll come back to him later on. Let us now go and meet one of those who have returned home. The new returnee, as soon as he sets foot on the island, asserts himself. He answers only in French and often no longer understands Creole. Oof. Dude, that's me, dude. Like, I speak English. I don't. My Arabic is just ass. Like, it sucks. Ugh. <laughs> it sucks. But yeah, damn. A folktale provides us with an il illustration of this. After having spent several months in France, a young farmer returns home. On seeing a plow, he asked his father, an old, don't pull that kind of thing on me, peasant. <laughs> What's that thing called? By way of an answer, his father drops the plow on his foot and his amnesia vanishes. Awesome therapy. <laughs> <clears throat> so here is our new returnee. He can no longer understand Creole. He talks of the opera house, which he has probably seen only from a distance, but most of all, he assumes a critical attitude toward his fellow islanders. He reacts differently at the slightest pretext. He knows everything. He proves, he proves himself through his language. On the Savannah and Fort de France, a meeting place for young people, the new returnee is given the floor for a purpose. As soon as school's out, they all gather at, on the Savannah. Imagine a square 600 feet long and 120 feet wide, lined by worm-eaten tamarind trees down each side, at the top of the huge war memorial, acknowledging the mother country's gratitude to her children. And at the bottom, the central hotel, a square twisted with uneven paving stones and gravel that crunches underfoot, and walking up and down in it, 300 or 400 young people, greeting one another, making contact. No, never making contact, <laughs> then walking on. Hi, how's it going? Hi, how's it going? Hi, how's it going? And that's been going on for 50 years. Yes, this town is a lamentable shipwreck. This life, too. Whew. Yeah. I feel you, Fanon. They meet and talk. And the new returnee is quickly given the floor because they are waiting for him. First of all, regarding form, the slightest mistake is seized upon, scrutinized, and in less than 48 hours it will be all over Fort de France. There's no forgiving the Martinetian flaunting his superiority for failing his duty. <laughs> Let him say, for instance, I did not have the good fortune when in France of seeing gendarmes on horses' backs, and he was lost. His only choice is either to get rid of his Parisian affectation or to die of ridicule. <laughs> for people will never forget, once married, his wife will realize she has married a joke, and his children will have to deal with and live down the tale. Where does this change of personality come from? What can this new way of being be ascribed to? Any idiom is a way of thinking, Damaret and Pichon said. And the fact that the newly returned Martinetian adopts a language different from that of the community in which he was born in is evidence of a shift and a split. 
Professor Westerman writes in The African Today that the feeling of inferiority by blacks is especially evident in the educated black man who is constantly trying to overcome it. The method used, Westerman adds, is often naive. The wearing of European clothes, whether rags or the most up-to-date style, using European furniture and European forms of social intercourse, adorning the native language with European expressions, using bombastic phrases and speaking or writing a European language, all these contribute to a feeling of equality with the European and his achievements. <laughs> By referring to other research and our personal observations, we would like to try to show why the black man posits himself in such a characteristic way with regard to European languages. We recall once again that our findings are valid for the French Antilles. We are all well aware, however, that this same behavior can be found in any race subjected to colonization. We have known, and unfortunately still know, comrades from Dahomey or the Congo who say they are Antillean. We have known and still know Antillians who get annoyed at being taken for Senegalese. It's because the Antillean is more evolue than the African, meaning he is closer to the white man. And this difference exists not only on the street or along the boulevard, but also in the administration in the army. Any Antillian who has done military service in a colonial regiment of infantry is familiar with this distressing situation. On one side, the Europeans and the French Antillians, and on the other, the Africans. I can remember once when in the heat of action, a nest of enemy machine guns had to be wiped out. Three times the Senegalese were ordered out and three times they were forced back. Then one of the Senegalese asked why the Tubabs didn't go. In such moments, we no longer knew whether we were Tubabs or natives. For many Antillians, however, the situation was by no means distressing, but on the contrary, quite normal. That would be the last straw, to put us with the N-words. This is really good. Because this same attitude that he's talking about, I would say, well... It definitely exists within any single race. Like, uh, it definitely exists by like more classed people versus lower class people in a single uh, race. Um, definitely, colorism is a pretty good example of this attitude. <coughs> um, lighter skinned people thinking they're like more superior, closer to whiteness. But then it also exists um, between the races. So, like, a lot of Asians and Middle Easterners are kind of in this boat. Um, and biracial, and I would say a lot, a lot of biracial people too, of being like, I don't identify with the, um, and in this case that he's using, the Senegalese, right? The Africans. We're not like them. Um, but we're not quite the white people. But, you know, we're close. We're closer to the white people than the blacks. And, uh, yeah, I like that he... He pulls this out. It's it's kind of a good way of understanding every single place in the hierarchy. Because like we talked about, even in, and I mean, not just race, but like race, class, and gender. And we talked about this even in the nerd jock dichotomy. Like you have white men, <laughs> upper class white men, who feel like they're in the middle. That they're like, uh, they don't identify with the jock white man. Um or or the middle or even the bottom, but like they don't identify with the jock white man, but they also don't identify as black or as female or whatever. Um, and so this 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 place, this psychological place, this attitude, it's ubiquitous, right? You don't have to be uh, like.
Like even if you're on the top or on the bottom, you still don't feel like that. You still feel like it could be worse or it could be better. And that's an important, like I think, psychological aspect of the racial hierarchy and the suppressive hierarchies in general. Um, and why they're destructive for everyone in them, not just the people who are at the bottom. But anyway. The European despises the African and the Antillian lords it as uncontested master over this black rabble. <laughs> An extreme example, but nevertheless amusing, is the following. I was recently talking with a Martinetian who was incensed that certain Guadalupians were passing for Martinetian. But, he added, the mistake was rapidly detected. They are more savage than we are. <laughs> Meaning, once again, that they are farther removed from the white man. It is said that the black man likes to palaver. And whenever I pronounce the word palaver, I see a group of boisterous children raucously and blandly calling out to the world. Children at play insofar as playing can be seen as an in initiation to life. The black man likes to palaver, and it is only a short step to a new theory that the black man is just a child. Psychoanalysts have a field day, and the word orality is soon pronounced. <laughs> that must be like a psychological inside joke, or psychology inside joke. <clears throat> but we have to look further. We cannot hope to cover the fundamental question of language here in its entirety. The remarkable research by Piaget has taught us to distinguish stages in its emergence. And the studies by Gelb and Goldstein have demonstrated that the function of language operates by steps and degrees. Here we are interested in the black man confronted by the French language. We would like to understand why the Antillian is so fond of speaking good French. Let's see real quick. Okay. I think, yeah, this is a good, I think, stopping point for this episode. Um, we're about halfway through chapter one, and I think we got through a lot of really solid points. Um, I think one of the things that stands out to me is Fanon's sarcasm. I really like how funny he is. Like he's constantly making jokes, which is pretty dope. I mean, I've read um, a lot of Wretched of the Earth and it's not as funny. And in general, because he's super academic, like it's uh, a little bit dry humor. Um, but also because a lot of this stuff, like people think about um, liberation movements, black struggle, like reading about these ideas um like fanon or or whatever it's like being super dry um or or tough or like stressful and i mean all those things are true in a way but i also just love how funny it is him and jamaica kincaid are honestly a riot i mean kincaid's even funnier but uh, i really like that about his writing and even though i know that a lot of the jokes are going over my head don't get me wrong but, um, yeah, and <clears throat> I mean, I didn't take a lot of breaks in this one um, to kind of just add my own shit, but, like, I think it's probably, like, hopefully if you've been listening along, you can start to see the influence that Fanon has had, like, not just on me, but in general, in a lot of liberation thinking. 
and um, I think it's really this book is really really good it's really good to get to like where he was and what he was thinking and like where this idea kind of got articulated in his way even if I think it's like um, older than Fanon um, I don't really know anywhere else it's been articulated exactly like this uh, and uh, yeah it's kind of the the pages are <laughs> dense and long uh so i i overestimated how far i'd be able to get we could go another hour and try to get to the end of it which we might be able to do but i think it would just make sense to end here and i'll i'll pick it up like exactly where we left off for the next one and um yeah i'm looking forward to reading more of this book as well not just this chapter trying to think of it as anything I should summarize. Um, I just highly recommend listening to the What is Race episodes, which were this, the second, third, and fourth episodes um, of the podcast, if you haven't already, because I get into a lot of detail there um, about how, like, the dynamics between these different identities and how like you can't just if you don't really think about the values that underlie your behavior and not just the values but like the emotions right the spiritual attachments behind the things that underlie your behavior like if you see um what you're doing as just kind of like self-improvement <laughs> or if you think about our society as like this linear thing that's like making progress um that's actually you're doing a disservice to yourself your own freedom your own health uh and happiness um because that's those values are they're not neutral they're not universal values right um like becoming successful is not a neutral thing it's not a universal thing um it requires uh becoming more of a white it becoming it requires becoming like more of a colonial subject it requires adopting the colonial way of life of which is an oppressive way of life and it's oppressive to you not just like oh you're hurting other people it's like you're hurting yourself um you're killing yourself you're dooming yourself and you're dooming your descendants and you're also dooming your ancestors as well so but just just to keep it focused like it's harmful to you and i don't know when i don't know when it's going to come up i don't know when your body and your spirit are eventually going to have enough it might not happen in your lifetime it might happen with one of your descendants you know whether they're like a blood descendant or not and uh that shit, shit is painful <laughs> and the longer you suppress it the more painful it is to heal it so highly encourage healing it as soon as possible um and like really starting to reconnect with your true self like integrate with who you fully are like the the light and the dark um like the 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 happiness and the sadness um the peace and the rage like reconnecting with all of that 
Uh, and I guess maybe we'll talk about it more in the next episode. It's not just avoiding like becoming or avoiding adopting colonialism and oppressive values is not a matter of just stopping, like stop being white and be more black. That's also a pitfall. And there's a lot of, um, even especially modern, like contemporary, current day, whatever, thinking around this, that like blackness is inherently insurrectionist or liberatory, which I don't think is true. It's just, it's like um, gender is a really good example too. Like adopting a gender identity that's not male or female is not inherently liberatory. It's not insurrectionist. I mean, adopting a male or female gender identity is definitely not liberatory. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But adopting one that isn't one of those is also not liberatory. Um, not inherently anyway. Same with blackness and whiteness. Like if you just if you're just more black instead of more white, that doesn't make you any less colonial or oppressive it doesn't make you any further away from adopting colonial values right because remember the black identity is born from created from the white identity it's created from colonial culture and so whatever um, qualities it's allowed to have whatever roles it's allowed to play in the race hierarchy is still going to be colonial and oppressive um, so yeah maybe we'll pick that up more uh, when we finish this chapter um, in the next episode but uh, I just wanted to put that out there. And it's probably redundant if you've been listening to the podcast. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I want to spend some time and go into more detail about it. But yeah, that's going to do it for this one. Um, I hope it was fun. Uh, I hope you're enjoying like the the authors uh, and the different works. And uh, yeah, at least as much as I am because I'm enjoying it tremendously. And uh, we'll continue. So, yeah. All right. Take it easy.